case before the Oklahoma Water Resources Board meets, they actually uh, they sit in this room and discuss the application and vote whether to approve or deny the application. At 9 a.m. on the dot, state water attorney Cynthia Lou Claver hits record on our tape recorder during this mediation session between an Oklahoma farmer and his neighbors. The farmer wants to bottle groundwater and sell it for profit. The neighbors don't approve. So they're the decision makers. And you'll receive a, a copy of my proposed recommendation and can attend that board meeting and uh, present your information directly to them or arguments directly to the nine-member board. A warning, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence. They generally meet the second Tuesday of every month. And in just a few seconds, the sound of an explosion. Uh, with regard to this proceeding, basically there are four elements that I have to uh, uh, receive information regarding. Claver's tape player keeps recording as concrete and metal rip apart all around the room and electrical wires drop from the ceiling. Chunks of material are blocking the door at the front of the water building. Claver and the others crawl through rubble to find a different exit. Downtown Oklahoma City is transformed. Smoke everywhere, an acrid smell in the air. People with cuts all over their bodies are just sitting on the curb. And the federal building across the street is unrecognizable. Timothy McVeigh's truck bomb killed 168 people after it detonated right next to the federal building. It was the second anniversary of the Waco siege. I had just come out of a meeting from my manager's office, whose office was directly behind mine. Richard Williams is assistant building manager for the General Services Administration, responsible for all federal buildings in the state of Oklahoma. I was standing in my office talking with my planner estimator, Tom, about the results of a meeting we had just had with the clerk of court uh, from the district courts across the street. And we're standing there talking about that meeting. It's the last thing I remember. I didn't hear anything. I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything. Williams estimates McVeigh's famous rider truck was parked no more than 75 feet from his office, which was on the first floor. It's amazing when you consider there were people within just a few feet of me that were killed, my own co-workers and friends. Uh, there were people within a few feet of me that barely had a scratch. Leading the investigation, a relatively unknown DOJ official named Merrick Garland. The DOJ sent him to help organize the government's investigation into the attack. Um, and we stopped in Indianapolis to refuel. In 1995, the FBI didn't have a plane that could fly all the way to Oklahoma. And uh, somebody else came out with another brick and said, uh, is Reno's on the phone? And Janet Reno was the attorney general at the time. She said, we found him. He's at a, at a uh, jail um, in Oklahoma. And uh, you're going to be doing the initial hearing tonight. Uh, you had to get through a ring of uh, Humvees, which uh, National Guard, I guess, had set up uh, maybe 10 square blocks or so around the bomb site as a crime scene. Um, and got through that and we drove through and you could see broken glass all over. You could see windows broken. You see crumbled bricks on the ground. 
and then we finally got to the site, and the site was lit up like, you know, just like a sun, like the middle of the day, because of big lights everywhere. Um, and, you know, the extent of the catastrophe was immediately apparent, a gaping hole in the building and, and everything. Um, and, uh, I mean, the, the worst part was being told that where the kids had been. Some three decades after the attack, Claver's tape player is on display inside a replica of the Water Building's mediation room. Visitors to the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial and Museum can listen to it as they enter a wing dedicated to the bombing itself. As the sound of the explosion plays, doors swing open to a room filled with real-life artifacts in the bombing. Briefcases, badges, glasses, chunks of concrete are in display cases, and televisions play news coverage from around the world. By the standards of a Europe used to terrorist bombing, U.S. federal buildings are easy targets, open to the public, minimum security. The memorial just outside is the size of a city block with a large open space in the center. On opposite ends, the gates of time reference the moment the bomb exploded. On either end of the block-sized memorial, thin walls are marked 9.01 a.m. and 9.03 a.m. The explosion was at 9.02 a.m. Between the gates are 168 glass chairs meant to symbolize the empty seats at the table for those who lost relatives in the attack. The end result was exactly what we wanted the memorial itself to look like, to represent, and to remember to make sure that people understood and learned from what had happened there through a process that was unique to all of us. The pool of victims and survivors was unusually large. Its members had the nation's attention and sympathy. They used both to their advantage. They lobbied lawmakers to streamline death penalty appeals to shorten the time between the sentencing phase and actual execution. Most remarkably, perhaps, was a successful campaign that resulted in granting victims the right to participate in another person's execution. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, I'm George Hale, and this is Rush to Kill, a podcast about federal death row from the public media journalists who cover it. This week, we're looking back to the first executions ever carried out in Terre Haute. The death penalty promises closure, but does it deliver? And what changes when the victims of a crime number in the thousands? Williams noticed that in the months following the attack, survivors like himself and people who lost loved ones started splitting up into groups. Some became obsessed with each step of the investigation, debating the latest theory or rumor. I just didn't feel that that was something that I personally needed to be a part of. And partially because I was so involved in putting our, our operation back together, we lost people. We had people who were injured that couldn't come back to work. I, that for me was my focus. One is getting back to being at work, being involved in something. Those were my buildings. Those were my people. And I needed to focus on that. Others took up the mantle of victims' rights, which gained one of their first major wins in 1991. 
The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that murder victims' family members could deliver victim impact testimony at sentencing. The bombing shifted the trend into overdrive. There really wasn't much focus, I think, until the late 1980s, early 1990s, when people started to use closure as justification for the death penalty. Jody Madeira is a law professor at Indiana University. And it became an independent justification for executing someone the prosecutors would make, you know, in sentencing, give the victim's family members closure. Madeira wrote her dissertation on the concept of closure in the context of the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy McVeigh's prosecution. Interestingly, at that time, we also had another uh, basically communicative development for victims' families, and that was victim impact testimony. So people could speak at sentencing who had been affected by the crime, and they could say, I want to see him die. Or they could say, please uh, exercise mercy and spare his life. I've already forgiven him. But they could address the, the jury, and what they had to say was relevant. So the Supreme Court initially said, no, it's not relevant, and then changed their mind two or three years later in a Supreme Court case and said, yes, it is relevant, um, which led to another offshoot, uh, execution impact testimony. So you had the law, right, of what this person did and, you know, aggravating circumstances and mitigating circumstances. And then you had the victim impact testimony, what people, you know, affected by the victim's, fam- the victim's loss had to say. But then You also, thanks to the defense counsel, had execution impact testimony, which was offered by the defendant's family in reaction to the victim impact testimony. So there became layers, even almost like an onion, of closure assertions that were based on the execution. And predictably, victims often said, we expect to get execution closure. And the defendant's family members, who did not want their loved one to die, basically said, we don't expect that this will provide closure. At sentencing, defense attorney Richard Burr says Timothy McVeigh's team recognized the need to somehow humanize their client. The overall strategy with him was because of the enormity of this and because of what motivated Tim McVeigh. Um, We had in in some way to figure out how how to to help the jury understand that this was not just Tim McVeigh's responsibility, that there is some shared responsibility elsewhere. What I mean by that is that the motivation for Tim McVeigh was really two sources. One was the Gulf War. He was uh, uh, just uh, a brilliant soldier who was moving up through the ranks very quickly and the Gulf War happened. He went there. He was deployed through Kuwait. Uh, his unit was prepared to in- encounter tremendous resistance and to take a lot of casualties. And what they found was what struck Tim as genocide by the U.S. against the Iraqi people. Um, everywhere they went, there were burned out villages, cars, people, no resistance. Um, and his, he felt like he'd been misled and that the government had done something terrible in Iraq. He came back, got out of the army, couldn't stand it anymore. And then within a year or two, Waco happened. They also created a special unit of sorts for making contact with bombing victims. We 
worked with restorative justice experts from Eastern Mennonite University in Virginia to develop a process for we, the defense team, reaching out to the survivors of people killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, not asking them for anything, but offering a relationship. Uh, if they wanted to ask us questions, they wanted to try to understand why we do were doing what we were doing, we would be happy to try to answer their questions. Some of them were you know, rescue workers and medical personnel and people in the coroner's office. Uh, but then, you know, there were 20 or 25 family members, and we reached out to, I think, all of them. And by reach out, I meant I sent them a letter telling them how sorry we were about the loss of their loved one and explaining a little bit about what we were offering. And uh, our offer was that, you know, they could meet with a person that could be a kind of a liaison between us and them if they wanted to or or talk with us by telephone if they wanted to. We were just sort of feeling our way. And, you know, we, we got a few responses from people, and I talked to a few people, but, you know, it, it was awkward, and, and nothing really came of it. From a Denver courtroom to an Indiana death chamber, the curtain closes on condemned killer Timothy McVeigh. The long journey to justice has ended with a death sentence for mass killer Timothy McVeigh. Inside the courtroom, McVeigh sat stoic as always when the verdict was announced. The jury sentenced McVeigh to death anyway. That whole process started in Tim McVeigh's case. It was not developed at all by the time we had to employ it. And, you know, we did it poorly, just, you know, based on all, all the, the work that's been done to develop it since then. Um, but that, that was one thing we realized, at least intuitively realized, we needed to we needed to have some relationship with the people hurt. Uh, we couldn't just be bystanders to that or antagonists to that. We were not antagonists. You know, we, we had to have some, some positive relationship to the people hurt, and we just didn't know quite how to do it. That's where we came out with him. Burr also worked with a different former soldier facing a federal death sentence. Lewis Jones is a decorated Gulf War veteran, like McVeigh. In February 1995, Private Tracy McBride was on the phone at a laundry room at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas. Jones put a gun to her head. Another private on the base rushed to rescue McBride. Jones tussled with him, struck him with a handgun, and knocked him unconscious. After driving McBride to his apartment, he tied her up, put her in his closet, and later drove her 20 miles outside of town. Under a bridge, he repeatedly smashed into her head with a tire iron until she died. One thing about Lewis Jones, he, he never denied committing this really horrific crime. It's Timothy Floyd, professor of law at Mercer University School of Law in Macon, Georgia. He was very gracious and humble and appreciative um, of my work on the case. He was also, he, he had a lot of personal guilt about it. Um, at the same time, he, he supported my efforts um, in trying to have his death sentence set aside. But what I'm saying is he was never trying to, to deny his guilt or to get out of prison. He knew that if we were successful in all of our efforts, the best that could ever happen for him would be to spend the rest of his life in prison. 
it, that's, I suppose at some level, he, he, he understood that maybe he, he deserved the death penalty if anybody does. But on the other hand, there was, a, there was a lot about Lewis Jones that he had to live for. He had a daughter that he was close to. The attorneys believe Jones' crime was tied to his time in Iraq. It's just not that he was innocent, but there was a lot of evidence about um, the brain injuries that he suffered serving his country and being exposed to Saddam Hussein's nerve gas. At trial, Jones' defense attorneys offered evidence that his behavior changed dramatically after he returned from the Gulf War. This was a highly decorated veteran, by all accounts, you know, an upstanding soldier. And there was evidence that he had become kind of erratic and even on occasion violent to his wife. Um, and, but, but there was no real explanation of, of why that might have happened. There was, um, the, the science hadn't actually been developed um, that as to the effect of nerve gas, but more importantly than that, the government was adamantly denying at the time of his trial in the fall of 1995 that he had ever been exposed to nerve gas at all. But what did happen, we only discovered after the trial, was that Sergeant Jones had been very near a munitions dump that had been destroyed after the war was over. Turns out it, it contained a lot of sarin nerve gas, and there was a lot of that nerve gas uh, that was released that exposed a lot of troops. And he was among them. Again, though, that evidence was not available at the time of the trial. And in fact, uh, the federal government, the Department of Defense, was still denying that there was ever any exposure at all. They later had to admit that it was true. The feds charged Jones with kidnapping resulting in death. Under federal law, this would receive either life imprisonment or the death penalty. In custody for a different offense, Jones confessed to kidnapping and murdering Tracy McBride. The judge spared no time getting started. Most death penalty prosecutions take at least a year, um, sometimes a good bit longer than that. Um, but the trial judge uh, was wanted the case to get to trial, so he denied all the defense motions for continuance. But as a result, I think the defense lawyers weren't as prepared as they could otherwise have been. There was a lot of evidence, a lot of investigation, a lot of research that needed to be looked into, and there simply wasn't the time or the resources to get that done before the trial. It was extremely traumatic to me and uh, disheartening. Uh, I decided that I was never, ever going to represent anybody in a, another capital murder case. Dan Hurley assisted with Jones's defense during trial. And uh, I, I had a significant bill uh, for my time. Uh, to submit to the federal courts, and I just chose to never do that. Uh, I just, I felt that I'd failed Lewis Jones, that the system had failed him, and I didn't want to have one penny as compensation for that. Hurley says he's still haunted by his client's guilt. The courtroom in, uh, in Lubbock has got large tables that are council tables and they have a glass top and during the trial there were times where Lou's tears would hit that glass tabletop and almost sound like uh, big raindrops and there would be a puddle of tears that was um, 
you know, 12, 15 inches in diameter. And uh, that that image is burned in my memory about his remorse and sorrow for what he had done. So it was a small city, and this crime happened, and, and it was all over the news, and we all knew about it. Reverend Jason Fry was Jones' pastor for eight years. Honestly, I was shocked and horrified and devastated to learn of her death uh, and the circumstances surrounding it. And, and as we heard the news about him, I, I kind of wondered, along with everybody else in the community, you know, what kind of a person could do such a thing? At a board meeting for a San Angelo prison ministry, Reverend Fry listened as the ministry leader read, as usual, letters from prisoners about faith. But soon, he came across the side of Jones he didn't think could possibly exist. And then she read this particular letter that she read to us that was much more articulate than your typical letter. I mean, most of the letters sounded like they're written by elementary school children, you know. This one sounded much more, it was just a different sort of letter, the depth of articulation of his experience and the experience of God's grace and forgiveness and all that. And then when she got to the end of the letter, she said the name, and it was Lewis Jones. And a couple of us didn't catch it right away, and we said, Lewis Jones, you know? And and, uh, and we were all kind of stunned. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I felt like God was giving me a pop quiz. Um, you know, do you really believe this, uh, this message of grace and forgiveness of sin that you preach? Uh, or don't you? Because if it doesn't apply to somebody like him, then what makes you think it applies to you? <laughs> you know, that was really my response. The day after Jones's execution, the U.S. invaded Iraq again. It's ironic, but the federal death penalty that was supposed to try to help us move beyond racial disparities and geographic arbitrariness only reinforced it. And when we talk about race and the federal death penalty, at least as of the time that Lewis Jones was executed, overwhelmingly, uh, the people on federal death row were people of color uh, who had murdered um, people that were white. McVeigh's day came up, man, the weirdos came out the woodworks. People were writing everybody in our unit asking us, do we know anything about McVeigh? Do we have anything of McVeigh's uh, to sell? Christopher Vialva is on federal death row for his role in kidnapping and killing a husband and wife who were visiting Texas. Timothy McVeigh had mad groupies and mad crazy people. Uh, I talked to him one time and he said, you ain't gonna believe this. I said, what? What happened? He said, I'm telling you, you're not gonna believe it. I said, well, tell me then. He said some dude in Sweden asked could he sign over his body to him at, um, for after he's executed because he wanted to consume his testicles. Not bullshitting. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. And you know, I'm a youngin'. 21 years old and I'm hearing all this shit and I'm reading all this stuff these people are telling me uh, telling me reporters is writing me asking me all kinds of questions what do you know about him I'm willing to pay money for it and all that I'm like what and I'm talking about reporters from all over the world 
It's like, this dude is like, you know, this is a guy, you're thinking of the guy you see on TV. Like, he's supposed to be like the most infamous dude in America. And I see him, he looks like all gaunt in the face. Just tall, lanky, and gaunt. Like, skinny, like, like, like he's been starving himself type skinny. But uh, he didn't do a whole lot of talking. I know when he got close to his date, though, uh, my mom wrote him a letter, you know, talking about his salvation and stuff. Um, but uh, I was in the cell upstairs from him, and he called me out the window. I, I came to the window, I said, yo, uh, what's up? And he was like, oh, is that, is that um, Viala? I was like, yeah, oh, man, I thought that was some someone else. I, I said, what? He said, man, you know all you black guys sound the same. And, you know, he just wanted to let me know that he's like, yo, man, tell your mom that... Um, um, I appreciate her concern and everything, and that's nice that she did that, but I'm good with that, right? I said, oh, okay, and I didn't even know she wrote it. The execution of Timothy McVeigh was postponed today for 30 days. The death of the Oklahoma City bomber had been set for next Wednesday, but Attorney General Ashcroft pushed it back to June 11. He acted after learning the FBI failed to share thousands of documents with McVeigh's lawyers during his 1997 trial. Ascroft said the papers would not change the verdict, but he wanted defense lawyers to review them. Timothy McVeigh, by his own admission, is guilty of an act of terrorism that stole life from 168 innocent Americans, and these documents do not contradict the jury's verdict in the case. However, I believe the Attorney General has a more important duty than the prosecution of any single case, as painful as that may be to our nation. It is my responsibility to promote the sanctity of the rule of law and justice. It is my responsibility and duty to protect the integrity of our system of justice. Therefore, I have made a decision to postpone the execution of Timothy McVeigh for one month from this day so that the execution would occur on June the 11th, 2001. I know many Americans will question why the execution of someone who is clearly guilty of such a heinous crime should be delayed. I understand that victims and victims' family members await justice. But if any questions or doubts remain about this case, it would cast a permanent cloud over justice, diminishing its value and questioning its integrity. For those victims and for our nation, I want justice to be carried out fairly. And I want a criminal justice system that has the full faith and confidence of the American people. Later, President Bush spoke about it at a White House news conference. I believe strongly the Attorney General made the right decision today. Anytime we're preparing to carry out the death penalty, we have a solemn obligation to make sure that the case has been handled in full accordance with all the guarantees of our Constitution. The very foundations of our democracy depend on our ability to assure our citizens that in all criminal cases, and especially in the death penalty, defendants have been treated fairly. This decision is going to create some frustration amongst people whose lives were destroyed 
and turned upside down, Mr. McVeigh. But it is very important for our country to to make sure that in death penalty cases, people are treated fairly. Two years later, Zan Carter was organizing protests ahead of McVeigh's execution. I'm I'm from actually from Florida, from Miami, Florida, and um, I was active in a variety of peace things then. <clears throat> and uh, then I read an article in the paper here a couple of years after we moved here about them breaking ground for a federal death chamber to be located here. And I remember I said to my husband, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to get involved because I was very opposed to the death penalty and it was going to be right here on a federal level. Carter is a co-organizer of the Terre Haute Abolition Network. We just figured it was up to us here in this community to be, you know, to take the lead on this and um, create this space for people to come safely and peacefully to um, speak up against the death penalty, even if it was Timothy McVeigh. Thousands of protesters descended on Terre Haute that week. The Bureau of Prisons said they couldn't bring speaking equipment on grounds. In response to that, I decided, okay, you know, we'll just we'll just shut up then. We'll be quiet. And we created this um, thing called the Circle of Silent Witness, um, which we asked people. It was voluntary. Uh, if you wanted to jump up and make a ruckus and be, you know, screaming about the death penalty, that was fine. But we just asked that the space where we had this circle would be left alone. And so uh, it was just an invitation to anybody who wanted to join. And so we would create this. It was just like a spiral. We all sat in a spiral. This was the plan. And um, we planned to sit there for 168 minutes in silence. And um, that's what we did. And mm, everybody joined us. Nobody was... Uh, making a ruckus. So it was absolutely silent for, you know, almost three hours before the execution. Tim McVeigh did feel remorse. It was never publicly expressed. Um, He, I mean, I just, I know I I can't provide the details, but I know from the many, many hours I spent with him um, that he felt, he felt the, the loss of particularly of the parents uh, who lost children. I don't know if that's what motivated him towards the end of the process to to sort of withdraw his his post-conviction review process and have a date set for his execution. It was part of his motivation was that just the enormity of what he had been a part of became too much. It's not accurate to characterize him as a remorseless person. He was not remorseless. Um, it's hard for anybody who commits a murder to take responsibility for it. I mean, if you just imagine in any of our lives, if we do something terrible to another person, you know, not kill them or hurt them terribly or anything like that, but we just do something that really hurts them in some profound way, it's hard to take responsibility for it can say you're sorry, but that's not enough. And if you multiply that infinitely, <laughs> that's the weight of that's the weight of what Tim McVeigh faced. Uh, it's unimaginable. Uh, and, and he wrestled with that. I know that. 
The court order to execute inmate Timothy James McVeigh has been fulfilled. Pursuant to the sentence of the United States District Court in the District of Colorado, Timothy James McVeigh has been executed by lethal injection. Prison officials said McVeigh cooperated fully with the process. McVeigh's attorney, Robert Knight, thanked those victims who spoke out against the death penalty, and he apologized to the victims in general and shared some concerns. To the survivors in Oklahoma City who have had the courage to come out against capital punishment in spite of the tremendous pain that they have suffered, I say thank you. To the victims in Oklahoma City, I say that I am sorry that I could not successfully help Tim to express words of reconciliation that he did not perceive to be dishonest. I do not fault them at all for looking forward to this day or for taking some sense of relief from it. But if killing Tim McVeigh does not bring peace or closure to them, I suggest to you that it is our fault. We have told them that we would help them heal their wounds in this way. We have taken it upon ourselves to promise to extract vengeance for them. We have made killing a part of the healing process. This morning, the United States of America carried out the severest sentence for the gravest of crimes. The victims of the Oklahoma City bombing have been given not vengeance, but justice. And one young man met the fate he chose for himself six years ago. For the survivors of the crime and for the families of the dead, the pain goes on. Under the laws of our country, the matter is concluded. Life and history bring tragedies, and often they cannot be explained. But they can be redeemed. They're redeemed by dispensing justice, though eternal justice is not ours to deliver. By remembering those who grieve, including Timothy McVeigh's mother, father, and sisters, and by trusting in purposes greater than our own. May God in his mercy grant peace to all, to the lives that were taken six years ago, to the lives that go on, and to the life that ended today. Do you regret the fact that Timothy McVeigh received the death penalty and has been executed? Um, uh, when I became a judge, originally, uh, I supported uh, the death penalty at that time for Mr. McVeigh in, in, in that individual case. After taking office in 2021, President Joe Biden selected Garland for Attorney General. I don't have uh, any regret. Um, in the time between prosecuting McVeigh and today, Garland says he's developed reservations about the death penalty. But I have developed uh, concerns about the death penalty in the 20-some years since then. At his confirmation hearing, Garland faced questions on that stance from Republican Senator Tom Cotton. The sources of my concern are uh, issues of exonerations of people who have been convicted, 
of uh, sort of arbitrariness and randomness of its application because of how seldom it's applied and because of its disparate impact on uh, black Americans and uh, members of other communities of color. Those are the things that give me pause. And uh, those are things that have given me pause over the last, you know, as I thought about it over the last 20 years. Judge, if you were confirmed as attorney general and there was another case like Timothy McVeigh's where a white supremacist bombed a federal courthouse killing 168 Americans, including 19 children, and your U.S. attorney sought your approval for the death penalty, would you give him that approval? So I, I think it depends on what the development of the policy is. If the president asks or if we develop a policy about moratorium, uh, then it would apply across the board. Uh, there's no point in having a policy if you make individual discretionary decisions. So uh, if, that, if that's the policy, then that would be the policy. Before we move on from the Oklahoma City case, let me just commend you again for your work on it and say that I believe Timothy McVeigh deserved the death penalty. That was February 2021. Five months later, Garland issued a moratorium on carrying out federal death sentences while the government reviews procedures. Garland wrote, Serious concerns have been raised about the continued use of the death penalty across the country, including arbitrariness in its application, disparate impact on people of color, and the troubling number of exonerations in capital and other serious cases. He added, no federal executions will be scheduled while the review is pending. I'm George Hale, and this is Rush to Kill. This episode was produced by Wei Wong, Sarah Whitmire, and me, with help from Martha Abraham and Kaylee Manier. Editing by Perry Metz. Our researcher is Kathy Knapp. Special thanks to Graham Smith and Meg Anderson at NPR, and to Lauren Gonzalez, Eva Tesfai, Adelina Lancianese, and Arjun Hutchins. More information about the project at wfiu.org slash rush to kill.